You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hello, Narayan. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good, too. What a coincidence. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Narayan Helen Liebenson. Yes. You are a guiding teacher at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, very well-known Buddhist institution, and, and also at the uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. In Cambridge, Massachusetts. People should not fly to England in the, in the hopes of uh, getting guidance from you. I'm glad we got that straight. Yeah, that's good. Um, and more to the point, you're the author of a book we're going to talk about called The Magnanimous Heart, Compassion and Love, Loss and Grief, Joy and Liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also of a, of a, of a small kind of picture book of Buddhism that maybe we'll have a chance to talk about at the end of the conversation. Okay. Um, that'd be great. Now, one great thing about talking about your Buddhism book is it gives me a chance to talk about my Buddhism book. <laughs> why, why Buddhism is true because you are mentioned in it. I know. You have been uh, a teacher of mine on, I'm guessing maybe Five meditation retreats or so uh, of of a of a week or more uh-huh. over the years, um, and these were all at Insight Meditation Society. Uh, these are silent retreats, but uh, in the course of a uh, even a silent retreat, there are a couple of times when you actually uh, the, the students are actually allowed to speak. There's usually the way they're structured at IMS. There's a, a meeting, kind of a, a meeting of several students with the teacher, and then also a, a one-on-one with one of the two. There've been, always been two teachers at these retreats, and and, um, and the story I tell in my book, I actually quote you a couple of times. One on the subject of emptiness. Uh, this what I'm the, the quote I'm going to talk about is not quite as obscure as the subject of, of emptiness, maybe, but. Um, we were in our one-on-one meeting and you knew I was writing a book and, uh, I don't know what occasion this comment of yours, maybe I was asking questions like a journalist instead of like a yogi or something, Uh but you said, you know, you may have to choose between writing this book and liberation. (laughs) (laughs) And... I do remember that. (laughs) Yeah, well, for better or worse, I made my choice. So I guess no liberation for Bob. (laughs) Do you remember what you meant by that? Well, I um, remember that you were talking, actually, oh, this was like a bad yogi thing, because you were talking specifically. Wait, you're saying I was being a bad yogi? You were being a bad yogi, because. um, That's a little little bit of a judgment, it sounds like you're making, but okay. Like a Zen thing. This is like a hit the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense. Yeah, sorry. But. Um, you were talking about going to the Forest Refuge, and I was happy you were going to go to the Forest Refuge. We should say the Forest Refuge is uh, something for people with a certain amount of meditative experience. It's 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 an appendage of IMS, uh, yeah. but but there's less guidance, so you need to be a pretty experienced practitioner. You can stay a long time, and so on. Sorry, go ahead. Be a little bit more self reliant to practice at the Forest Refuge. Mm-hmm. Well, you had the number of retreats that you needed to have sat at IMS to be able to go to the Forest Refuge. So you were exploring with me this idea of sitting for the first time at the Forest Refuge. However, you told me that you were not going to just sit while you were there. You were going to at least think a lot 
about this law that was on your mind. So you sort of have to agree with me around bad yogi. That's bad. I, yeah. I am ashamed. I, I will live in shame. Well, right. So that's what that was. That was the context of that, that I was thinking, you don't want to waste your time at this place where it's quiet and the conditions are perfect and you could really look deep mm-hmm. at things as they are instead of um, concocting and creating and doing all the things that you're obviously really good at, but not in this particular context. Right. Retreat life. I thought it was such a, a waste of work. Of well, your- well, I mean, you're certainly right that um, in general, uh, my meditative practice, maybe especially as I was writing the book, but, uh, is, is impaired by thinking about, by analyzing the experience itself and thinking about how I might explain it to others. Right. That, that's, that's to some extent an inclination of mine and, and is of course heightened when I'm writing a book. But, uh, so you were, I, I, I can't complain about your, uh, yeah. your, your reprimand, but, um. Wait, wait, one second. Because- yeah. A lot of people, that's how they spend their time too. You know, they're not just doing what they're doing. They're also, as they're sitting, they are thinking about who at home they can tell their experience to. You just have a much bigger audience than um, somebody who's thinking about going home and telling their partner or their best friend or their mom or somebody like that. You have this, you know, kind of big um, audience that you can offer to. So you're doing the same thing that people generally, ordinarily do. And I guess I'm trying to make a Dharma point here that um, everybody needs to let go of the efforts to describe their experience to others um, because it's extra, you know, it's extra. And it is going to be a bit of an obscuration to simply um, releasing whatever is into the field of stillness. Yeah. I was I was once I once went to a, a regular sitting group a few times and they had this ritual. It was just like five or six people usually, but at the end of the sit, they would ask everyone to describe their experience. And I thought this is a terrible idea because, oh. right? You agree, right? Well, it depends. It depends because that's a little bit different to me in that you are being asked to. Um, to actually know your experience a little mm-hmm. bit more by having to describe it. And hopefully the instructions would also be to let go after you have described your experience. So I think again, mm-hmm. context. But, but this wasn't, it was a changing cast of characters each week. So there are always people you didn't know. And you know, that, that makes you just kind of, if you think about how you're going to describe it to them, it makes you a little self-conscious in a perhaps not constructive way. But right. enough right. about enough about me. The, 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 that little uh, digression does tie into the last word of the subtitle in your book, which is liberation. Again, uh-huh. the book is the magnanimous heart, compassion and love, loss and grief, joy and liberation. We're going to talk about uh, as many of these things as we can. A question I have that you don't have to answer now, but maybe we'll revisit it at the end. Okay. Um, and, and maybe an answer will kind of emerge is, you know, when, when you said you may have to choose between writing the book and liberation, like, what could I have ever hoped to achieve in the way of liberation? Cause, cause that's a pretty momentous term in Buddhism, right? I mean, it's equated with awakening, enlightenment, nirvana, and, and those things are sometimes described as these almost unreachably ideal states, right? And so, 
by the end of the conversation, I'd like to to have fleshed out what you mean okay. by liberation. What what people can can hope to get out of the practice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting question, and we don't have to go into it extensively right now. You you but, can if you want. It's you know, fine. it's a quest, um, question because it's so much um, a practice of of. Uh, releasing and relinquishing and letting be and letting go rather than getting something out of it. And this is really uh, so, um, to me, such a crucial point that in relaxing the grasping, you know, in the letting be, letting go, what is natural and inherent begins to emerge and be revealed to us and be seen. And then you know, then we we can live in that way. And you could say that it's a, a lessening of greed and hatred and delusion, but it's also something very, you know, it's positive qualities, such as kindness and um, compassion and wisdom and spontaneity and um, affection and, um, you know, a greater capacity to to love, a greater capacity to love without leaving anyone or anything out. All of that becomes available. And so it's it's in the moment a living of liberation. You know, it's not like I am liberated because, of course, that makes no sense at all. I mean, it's such a different, in, in interesting thing because, because that sense of I want to be liberated, I am liberated. There's always a you are not, you know, which kind of always a, a problem. Um, but but liberation is this sense of inner inner contentment or inner wholeness or um, balance of being that is expressing itself from moment to moment. Well, sounds great. Maybe I shouldn't have written the book, but <laughs> you still have a chance. It is what it is. The um uh so let's you know, your book is grounded in your personal experience, uh, in, including uh, a, a period of time a few years ago when uh, at, you know, in a short period of time, your, your marriage of 23 years dissolved and your father passed away. And, and so you, you talk about uh, your own, you know, uh, dealing with with the kinds of problems that that afflict uh, so many people Um so let's, but let's just start by talking a little about you and your, uh, you know, your, your, your childhood, how you got into the practice at, at a, at a, at a pretty early age. You got very adventurous and went to, uh, Thailand to, uh, uh, a more, more, a more literal kind of forest refuge, I guess we would say a kind of a, uh, you know, something, you know, in the, in the Thai forest tradition. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a, I, 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 I'm sure a little less cushy. Uh, I mean, not, not that IMS is, is a five star hotel. You know, it's, it's, I think a nice balance between Spartan and, uh, yeah. and, and accommodating, but, but I, I think your experience there was very different. So why don't, uh, first talk a little about where, where you come from and then how, how you, you got to Thailand. Yeah. Because Thailand, of course, one is dealing with, um, with, um, snakes and scorpions and bats and rats and, Good example of things I didn't encounter at yeah, IMS. It was a little bit different than even if, you know, I was a Girl Scout, but it didn't um, really matter <laughs> in that situation. Yeah, the, the conditions are just, you know, they're they're just quite different than they are at IMS. Yeah. So um, you say that uh, when you were young, you were a very sensitive child? 
your your um uh, your 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 mother i think you described as yeah you 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 describe your parents as wonderful people but you you say your mother was what had a kind of ongoing existential angst or something yeah my mother was catholic and my father was jewish and um my mother had kind of um it seemed like this free floating anxiety that, of course, I was a child, so I didn't know exactly what she was anxious about anyway. But it also seemed that it was not always object-oriented, that it was about many different things. This, this sense of, of um, this, this conditioning around worrying and, um, and being anxious and this and that. And I feel like I, I picked up on that with her. Mm-hmm. And I lived in that way, and I was I was afraid a lot. You know, I was afraid mm-hmm. of, at night um, going to sleep when I was just in this suburban house, and you know, nothing was really wrong. Um, there was a lot of fear going on, and I and I had to find a way to handle it or to work with it. And I feel that that's really where my meditation practice began: is trying to work with my mind. Because I didn't feel like I had any other avenues or options. Did you start doing this just on your own without even having encountered uh, the yeah. Dharma? Yeah, yeah. I started doing it alone in bed. Um, one thing I started to do was to say my name over and over again, to repeat my name to myself hmm. over and over again. Which was Helen at that point? or It was Janet. At Janet. That yeah, Narayan is my, is my Dharma name that was given to hmm. me. 40 some years ago so anyway i would repeat it to myself over and over again um and little kids are usually quite identified with their names right so it was such an interesting thing because i'd repeat it over and over again and gradually 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 um it would it would open me up to something where um that sense of self had lessened and something bigger um was available to me so it was this Hmm quirky thing that I don't know how I even thought of doing it, but it was a great practice for a while in terms of working with the sphere. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a mantra, but it did matter that it was your name that it, re- that it referred I to you? It mattered that it was my name because I think that saying my name over and over again kept started taking the emphasis off of it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like mm-hmm. a You know, it's not who you are. It's not my name. It's what you're called. Hmm. Some of that started happening. That's intense. For, for how old were you when you were doing this? I, everything seemed to start around the age of eight. So that's really good. I would kind of say that I was around eight when this happened. Oh, man. I was playing army at eight. <laughs> no wonder you're more spiritually advanced than I am. I was weird, you know. I was definitely weird. There's no one in my family that wouldn't agree with me. <laughs> well, that's something we have in common, but they mean weird in a less flattering way in my case, I think. No, no, um sure. <laughs> So so then oh so wow so we so so you're you're kind of making progress in a sense in dealing with your anxiety as a child and through adolescence or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having I don't I don't know how this really fit in, but my sense was that um, growing up in a in an Italian Catholic neighborhood and having my mother Catholic Irish Catholic and my father um, Russian Jewish, um, somehow we were different from everyone else. 
And I think, I mean, we were different than everyone else. And I think that actually kept me a little bit freer, um, possibly, in terms of being able to explore in the ways that I wanted to explore, meaning inwardly and um, and being somewhat daring in that way. And that's where being in the library helped a lot, too, where my parents would just drop me off at the library and... Um, you know, and sometimes, and sometimes fail to pick you up. I gather. I, I, I don't. I still don't totally understand that. But anyway, I would be there for hours and hours, and nobody was saying you can read this, but not this. You can go to this shelf, the little kid shelf, but you shouldn't go there. So it was fantastic. I had full freedom to roam around the library and um, and read whatever I wanted to. So. Different ideas kind of started percolating because I was getting ideas from this bigger body. Did you read about Buddhism or any kind of related tradition or philosophy there? All I remember reading about was the um, was the principle or the belief in reincarnation, which, as you know, ah. it's called rebirth, but it was about reincarnation mm-hmm. and. Um, and I remember, I talked about this, I think, a little bit in the book. I remember um, at one point thinking, wow, this explains everything, you know? In what way? <laughs> well, kind of that strangeness I felt in being in life and being embodied and um, the oddness, the oddness hmm. of the whole thing. How did this happen? You know, kind of thing. So you mean just the idea that this particular incarnation is just the thing you're inhabiting at the moment? It's not the fundamental thing? Yes. And this is, this. Ex- it felt like it explained my family, um, you know, that that's why I'm with this particular group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of seemed to make a whole lot more sense to me. So did, did that lead you to Buddhism? That interest? I was doing a little bit of yoga at that point. This was when I was around 11. I started doing yoga on my own, Whoa. and I guess that was in the same book around John. Um, you were a freak, man. I was a freak. <laughs> doing yoga at 11? <laughs> I know. It was really odd. But anyway, I enjoyed myself doing doing Good. Going. Yeah. And, um, and then when I, I kept, I stopped the yoga, but I, you know, kind of drug, sex, and rock and roll for a while. But then I, um, I picked it up again when I was in my later teens and I met, um, I met Yogi Bhajan and the Sikhs and Yogi Bhajan is the person who gave me my name. Hmm. You know, I just want to say a word about that, which is that, um, when I first got this name, I thought, oh my God, you know, what's wrong with Janet? This is so pretentious. But everybody in the community started calling me Narayan and I couldn't say, I mean, I did try to say no, you know, don't call me that, but everybody started calling me anyway because of, um, because of Yogi Bhajan. And now, it, now he, he is in what tradition? Uh, the Sikh tradition, Kundalini. Okay. It's Kundalini. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I understood something though by, by um, being called Narayan, instead of the resistance I had with this name Janet, you know, like, would you do this? Would you do that? No, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. With Narayan, I felt this kind of letting go of the childhood and um, a sense of, um, yes, you know, I can try that. Yes, I can. Mm. So it was, mm. it was very interesting how that happened. I'm sure it's not that way for everybody, but for me, it was quite useful. It was quite helpful. 
Wow. So now you're... My parents, as you can imagine. They weren't wild about... uh, They didn't call me anything other than than my birth name. I can imagine. Uh, (laughs) They they were pretty tolerant of it, though, in the end? I Well, they they liked me, you know, and they they um they thought I had done done well in life, and they felt like they actually when I was twenty four, my mother who had always worried about me looked at me and gave me a great gift. She said, "I don't have to worry about you anymore." Wow, and that was profoundly fantastic and wonderful, and our whole relationship changed. What a vote of confidence! Now, yeah. now, but by, by that time, had you? Had you gotten interested in Buddhism? Had you been I, to Thailand? I had, yeah, yeah. In those years, like early twenties, I I started um, I started getting deeply interested in this incredible. You can join me on this contemplative practice of sitting quietly and doing nothing. I don't know why, but it made the most sense that anything has ever made to me um, up till that point. Hmm. Just to stop. Just to stay still, to do nothing. And my faith was born out because in just sitting quietly and doing nothing, things started to reorder themselves. Things started to make sense. Things start, the confusion began to lift. Um, the fog started to clear. The whole thing happened kind of, I really say, in spite of myself, you know, in spite of my best efforts to get in my own way and block it all the sitting itself just the um just the faith i guess in the sitting practice helped tremendously and you started sitting uh what as a teenager or what before you went to thailand right before i went to thailand yeah so later teens um early 20s i was experimenting with sitting because i was so drawn to it and then of course in buddhism it's such a thing to mm-hmm. just you know just sit and contemplate and um, so even though the mind was incredibly confused, mm-hmm. uh, it started to clear out on its own, in its own way. You know, when I saw that, my effort was important, but it wasn't the only important component. That just mm-hmm. the effort to sit there was important and to, and to face what is. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't need to do much more than that. Yeah, it is a, um, you know, when I, I sit, every morning and uh, you know sometimes i mean 20 30 minutes will go by and my mind is just a jumble you know there'll just be a lot in my mind but you know typically you eventually get to a point i sit for 40 minutes and usually you know by 40 minutes even on a bad day there comes a moment and it's kind of surprising how how much of a threshold it can seem like just just suddenly you yes. move into a slightly different space. I don't mean it's this transcendental, highly dramatic thing. Right, right, right. It just is a calm, and you might be suddenly aware of sounds you had been completely oblivious to or something, but there's a, yeah. there's a quality of observation, That's uh, it. that, uh, that is very calming. And you know, sometimes in that phase, <laughs> just like good ideas will bubble up that there's a creativity that can begin to, yeah. um, happen. Because of of the calmness and the steadiness, something else can begin to happen. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, as you and I know, the calmness is just calm. And that's where, you know, that's where the Buddhist teachings are so brilliant, that that's half of the practice. But it's really, as we know, seen as a springboard into 
asking meditative questions, investigating, inquiring, illuminating mm-hmm. all aspects of one's life. You know, so it's not confined to one particular posture, which is just a posture. Okay. So before we get it, get, go ahead. I just like what you said about, you know, you know that you sit and then you see that something shifts. And I, I tend to call that the clicks. You know, it's like you Mm -hmm. click into something else. And then if you sat longer than 40 minutes, you might click into something else and then, you know, so on and so forth. That you can sustain attentiveness um, or have that intentionality around attentiveness, loving attentiveness. You allow shifts or changes to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into that further, why don't you just say a little about the Thailand experience because I think it was so dramatic. I mean, I mean, the did did uh, I mean it would sound dramatic to us, however it felt to you, I think, because you did. Um, I mean, first of all, I've heard you describe some of the conditions which you you alluded to briefly, where you know you just weren't in a place that was insulated from snakes and things, which could be a source of anxiety to some people, but. Uh, there's also, I, I gather, the sheer duration of the, I mean, were these like uh, multi-week, multi-month retreats or, or what? Yeah. Well, I wanted, I wanted to tell you an insight I had regarding snakes because one evening I was in my own little hut and, um, you know, of course. This I could- is like a screened in kind of hut thing or what? Uh, or it's just like a, a wooden like room house? Tiny wooden. Um, okay. where a lot can get in um my first night a one of those i can't remember what they're called but those lizards those gigantic lizards Mm. um really big (laughs) uh came in and and found a home over my head and i i had had a, a meeting with one of the monks there the next day and i i don't know why i just expected that this monk would see this as a terrible thing and um help me to get it out or send someone over to, um, to remove it because, you know, it was just so huge and frightening looking. And, um, and of course he did not. And he said, you'll be fine. And, um, you know, things like this happen here. And I, at some point realized, he didn't tell me this, but I realized that they could have gotten it out and it would have come in again. In other words, it was not an airtight situation. So even if I think there's a metaphor there. Well, yes, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, let me just tell you about the snake thing because it was really an interesting okay. experience. I was afraid of the snakes and I was afraid the scorpions were huge. And, you know, you can step on one if you don't have the right flashlight. And for whatever, you know, I was not as well prepared as I could have been. And my flashlight kept going out when I really needed it. So at one point I was outside of my little hut. And I was doing some walking meditation at night. And the way you do walking meditation there is you light a number of candles on your path. And then you, you have to keep lighting them because they go out. So you have to keep, you know, kind of, um, yeah, keep lighting, keep caring for the path. Mm-hmm. And so I was scared as I was walking that I was going to bump into a, a poisonous snake and, and die and nobody would ever know and all of that. You know, my mind really took off with it. And then I had this understanding that the snake did not care about me, that the snake would bite me if I came across its path, but it was not my path. 
And that the snake had its own life with its own family and its own, you know, whatever. And I was the one that was bothering the snake. The snake was living its own life. And I would have simply gotten in its way. And it was that simple. So the emotional content of it went out at that point. And I learned something. You know, I learned something about fear. And I learned something about not letting um, thoughts pick up steam. And I also, at this particular monastery, the teacher was this very fierce, and I felt very loving teacher. I, I, I really loved him. His name was Achan Mahabua. And I had heard that he could read your thoughts. Now, who knows, you know, because people say these things all the time that this person can do this and all these psychic powers and it doesn't matter. But Mm -hmm. anyway, that kind of stuck in my head. And so I didn't want to read my thoughts. My, my thoughts were like anybody else's thoughts, pretty, pretty crazy. And so it kind of kept me a little bit more, um, attentive, aware. Um, it helped. It helped. I mean, I was, you know, I was in my early 20s when this happened. I don't think now I would care at all if somebody could read my thoughts. But then it really mattered to me. Mm-hmm. And it, it helped to have that kind of presence. Okay. And so you stayed in Thailand uh, how long total? I went two times, and both times were two months each. Okay. Yeah. More or less sitting in silence uh, along with uh, teacher conferences, kind of. Yes. Yes, exactly. Really on my own. I mean, you go, you go to have your one meal a day, which is breakfast. I always wondered why it was so early in the day if you weren't going to eat for the rest of the 24 hours. Mm-hmm. One would go have that one meal um, with other people if they didn't bring it over to me. And um, then the rest of the day was sitting and walking, was on my own quietly. And then I had a teacher there, um, Ajahn Panya. Mm-hmm was uh you know kind of a kind of a uh student of Ajahn uh, Mahabua's and he would come over and I would I was able to have have to chat with him and have really good conversations and every so often I would I would talk to Mahabua with um with uh translation too okay uh, now so- Mah- Mahabua there there's a there's a you know important term in Buddhism called dukkha that's often translated as suffering Sometimes his unsatisfactoriness. Um, he, you say that his characterization of, of Dukkha was what? A constant squeeze? Yeah, was that? Find, um, this word Dukkha, which can mean suffering or unsatisfactoriness, um, or stress. But how he defined this word is that there is always this constant squeeze. Mm-hmm. And, I would just expand on that and say that we can feel that squeeze um, if we tune into it. And it's one of those surprises in meditation, as you might know, which is that, okay, we know when we're getting squeezed in life. You know, we know when difficult conditions are happening and we feel really squeezed, almost like there's a vice. Squeeze does not, does not, you know, is not accurate. It's really a vice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and but a lot of the time we can just kind of go on with our life, and if things are not so bad, um, we can think that it's not there. But when we get really quiet, you know, when we meditate and we get really quiet, it's not as if everything's wonderful. We begin to discover 
um, a more subtle squeeze. And this, from the viewpoint of, of real peace and ease and liberation, is really good news because then we have a chance of releasing it and um, and letting it go. So, so you say you you recognize how, at a subtle level, how how pervasive yes. dukkha can be. That's it. That's it. Yes. Which which is, I mean, one form it takes is just always wanting things to be a little different than they are. Right? Like, what could I? What could I eat or scratch or whatever that would make me feel a little better? Or where could I move that would make me feel a little less bad or whatever, right? It's that constant. That's it. Always there's got to be something better. Always there's got to be a different moment. Always things were better than they are now or are going to be better than they are now. And that's where meditation allows us to, to rest in life as it is right here. And now, mm-hmm. you know, it's so powerful and beautiful in that way because this is what we have. We don't mm-hmm. know what's going to come. You know, and I'm not saying don't plan and prepare and do what we need to do, but um, but we forget that this is all we have in reality is right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so, of course, uh, I mean, dukkha is the thing that uh, the Buddha said you could in principle, be liberated from, and 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 the the elimination of it was was the the point of uh, uh you know the the famous sermon at Deer Park and so on. But the um but but that's not the same as saying trouble won't arise. The no uh, no because we live in this world of conditions, so right. trouble is always going to arise. And if we can accept that as inevitable, I mean, in my book, you know, I'm focusing on really the reality of loss, you know, kind of, kind of almost, almost saying that, that dukkha and loss are the same thing, that, that there's always all these different descriptions, but, but why is there this constant squeeze? Oftentimes because of loss, loss Mm -hmm. that we know is going to happen, loss that has happened, that we still feel the heaviness and the weightiness of loss that we're currently experiencing. And is there a different way to respond to loss, to be in, in relationship, to, in wise relationship with loss, instead of um, being being completely bound by it and resigned to it, and or afraid of it, or mm-hmm. thinking that it's unnatural, that it should not be happening. So the inevitability of loss, and then hopefully the compassion that can come about because of our own losses, because of the loss of everyone that we see around us that we're in contact with. Mm-hmm. In, now, go ahead. Yeah. In that recognition, um, we can come about it from a, in, from a different perspective. Okay. So let's, why don't we talk about two of the, the central examples in your, in your book? I mean, as I said, in a, in a fairly short period of time, you lost your father. And you lost your marriage. And, you know, sometimes uh, people. And that was a short list, I want to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can, you can range as broadly as you want. Um, but, but the, uh, but, you know, sometimes people say, uh, wow, a divorce, it's like something died. But, but actually, I mean, the death of a person and, and, and the death of a marriage, um, there are different emotions that come into play. I mean, a death of a person is a, is, there's a kind of specific grief that, that, you know, people pretty much always feel. 
And I would guess that the breakup of a marriage has a, all kinds of emotions you got to deal with. Uh, I mean, not that the death of a person doesn't, but 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 it's it's certainly not like just deal with the grief of the marriage ending. I mean, I, I'm sure there are you know feelings not entirely charitable, inevitably some not entirely charitable thoughts at least some points about the other person. There's there's you know there can be did I do something wrong? Did sure. who knows? But why don't you yes. pick pick either of those? And, and if you could take us through, you know, at a, at an almost, um, you know, kind of mechanical level, like how, do, how does one, you're having a, one of these feelings, pick, pick the feeling you're dealing with and yeah. how exactly does it happen that the practice, uh, you know, makes things in some sense better? Right. Yes. Yes. Well, just, I just would agree that divorce is incredibly complex and not to say the death of a partner is not because that can be super complex as well. Um, divorce is, is trickily complex because um, people don't know what to say. They don't know. They don't know how, to know how to hold it. They don't know whether you're happy or sad. They don't know whether to offer congratulations or regrets. Um, you know, it's really, it's really complicated. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to use the word heartbreak, you know, um, one of my very wonderful, dear, dear friends, I don't know if you've ever heard of Sarah Doring. Uh, she was a someone at IMS who died some time ago at the age of 91. And she was a, a great benefactor of, of IMS, but she was also a great yogi, a really great yogi. And she wrote me a letter. She had had three divorces by the time she started to practice. And she wrote to me, and she used the word anguish. And I thought, this is so beautiful. This exactly fits the spot, that it's anguish. So looking at this emotion or phenomena or mental state of anguish, that's the one that might be most appropriate. Because anguish, it's, it's everything. You know, it's a very, um, there's a lot in it. It's, it's, a, it's a feeling of utter bereavement, of um really having lost what you most wanted or most felt you needed to have. I mean, it's a little elusive. When I when I think of like fear, anxiety, physical yeah. pain, yeah. dread, uh, more specific feelings come to mind in a way than anguish. I mean, I almost have to imagine myself being anguished about something. And yet it is it is a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it often comes with bereavement. Um mm-hmm when there is this intensity of loss. And sometimes with divorce, oftentimes with heartache or with divorce, or of course with the death of, um, of the person that you, you really did, wanted to be around you know, forever, mm-hmm. uh, there's a feeling of, of half of your body being cut off. You know, you don't have your, people talk about the person as your other half which is, I've never, I've always objected to that way of looking at things because, you know, we're all... We're all what am I, chopped liver? Yeah. Exactly. We're all holy food in nature on our own. But anyway, for me, I felt like my left arm had, had um, been cut off. And it was such an interesting thing because I'm right-handed. So it was my left arm and not my right. You know, in other words, I was fully functional throughout this whole thing. And... At a certain point, I, um, you know, kind of, kind of working meditatively, 
working meditatively, working meditatively. And I had this I had this very, very interesting experience after some time where not only did the left arm kind of kind of re reinstate itself, but I had four other arms that I had not known that I had. Hmm. So I felt like the five armed bodhisattva for <laughs> kind of, kind of came out of this. I know it sounds grandiose, but it was no. It's funny. Uh, after my father died, my mother—I mean, after a period of intense grief—you know—realized parts of herself she hadn't realized before. She had never gone to college, and she went and at you know in her sixties went to a junior college and got an associate's degree and and stuff. Exactly. Um, exactly. The so, so but so. Did you you did you sit with the feelings associated with yes. the, and and can you for people who don't meditate can you just kind of describe how that is productive I mean they might think like look if these are bad feelings why why you know revel in them why why get mired in them why spend time with them is isn't the goal to get rid of them so can you just explain how that's productive to actually kind of observe them yeah. Um, in, in a kind of a calm way. Yeah. I mean, first of all, to say that with difficult emotions, any degree of ruminating, you really don't want to do any degree of adding to the thoughts that arise. Usually when painful feelings are happening with thoughts, the thoughts that arise, they're the ones you most believe. And it's the time when you should most not believe your thoughts mm-hmm. is when a painful emotion is happening. So you have to kind of remind yourself of the Dharma, you know, that these thoughts are just empty phenomena arising and passing away. And they are not describing the way things are. They are energetic currents in a sense. That and, and meditation can give you enough detachment to almost, I mean, some people might quibble with the word detachment, but you know what I mean? The, to, to actually almost see the connection between the feelings and the thoughts and yes. and, and, and actually almost perceive that the thought is in some sense a product of uh, the feeling or in any event doesn't have some kind of independent validity. That's it. That's it. Yes. And this is where the training comes in because, you know, by the time this had happened, um, I had had a lot of training. And so all of that training was able, was enabled in um, the service of recognizing something really painful happening. And then also seeing that possibly, this is a real opportunity. This is a real path, you know, mm-hmm. a real invitation into a greater degree of freedom that I hadn't you know, been aware of before. So ruminating is out, obsessing is out, um, you know, thinking about what's happening. All of this, when the mind is, is, is somewhat trained, the mind is still quiet. You know, it's not, it's not like you're tormented by your thoughts anymore. That's one of the great, wonderful things that comes out of meditation is one is no longer tormented by one's thoughts. So um, in working with, with a feeling, with an emotion, allowing it to be in your body and allowing it to be experienced in your body, making some room for it, making some space for it, sitting with the, um, with the pain of it or the congestion of it and experiencing it change, you know, experiencing for yourself its impermanence. Because if you look attentively at anything, you're going to see its fluidity. You're going to see that it's not what it initially has appeared to be. 
you're going to see that it's moving and flowing and shimmering and, and changing just like everything else in this world. And so it begins to not stick out. It begins to kind of take its proper place in the world, be one phenomena among um, everything else mm-hmm. rather than sticking up as, as being such a problem. And so there's, there's not um, this sense of I should or should not be feeling this because you are feeling it. That mm-hmm. is the way it is. You know, this ego sense of, okay, I, I, I should or I shouldn't. You know? and, and this could be anxiety, sadness, fear, yeah, it is. Uh, any, any problematic uh, feeling. But the idea is, although your instinct is always to try to get rid of it and run away from it, you, you in some sense do the opposite and accept it. And, and that yes. uh, can be liber- can liberate you from it. Exactly. Yes, because the resistance, the resistance to anything is what keeps it locked in. You know, the aversion, the pushing it away, the thinking it shouldn't be happening. That's what keeps it imprisoned, keeps it in its special place. So the, the opposite of that, the welcoming, the breathing with, the yes, the okay, more of this, more of this, you know, kind of kind of being daring and, and seeing if, if even more you can mm. ask for, um, you start to see into it in a very, very different way. And then it's like lightning flash in the sky. You know, it's not the sky itself. It's just a flash of lightning that that comes and goes. That is clearly not who you are or not a description of reality. Right. Yeah. Different people have different ways they like to talk about this. Uh, um, not uh, To me, it seems like there's this, an important sense in which you are viewing your feelings more objectively than than usual. Not everyone likes to talk that way. Does, does, does that seem like a, a fair... Uh, okay, I don't want to quibble about that, you know, because yeah. I think I think that's those are just words. You just want there has to be the knowing, you know. As as Ajahn Mahabua says, then in the knowing is where the safety lies. Like anything can happen as long as you know it. If you don't know it, that's where you're in dangerous territory. Meaning mm-hmm. things can really pick up steam. But if you know it, then. Um, you're safe. So knowing, a moment of knowing, is really different than obsessing and adding the narrative to it and adding the sense of identity to it. You know, now this is who I am. This, this is my feeling. As yeah. opposed As opposed to just a feeling. Well, also that this feeling means that my life is going to go in a particular direction because mm-hmm. of this feeling. Or... Um, I am this kind of a person or that kind of a person and limit, limiting um, mm. possibilities in that way. And I know in there, uh, there's a p- point in your book, maybe more than one, where you talk about um, perceiving kind of the universality of feelings. And I, I hadn't really thought about it quite that way, but, and, but it's related to my, to my using the word objectivity. In other words, you kind of get a sense that this, I, I don't know if, if you explicitly think this, but people everywhere are having this same feeling. It's just a generic thing. It, it, it isn't really saying anything. It just happens. Part of your humanity. And it actually, you know, if you, if you hold it in the right way, it definitely makes for greater capacity for compassion because of understanding what we all go through. On this earth, you know, the, the, this understanding that, that, um, 
that really this this earth is soaked with our tears. Mm-hmm. And, and so do we just, are we resigned to that? Um, or we are we understanding of that, compassionate about that, sympathetic to that? And can we also look at the rest of the path? You know, can we can we use that as our path? Because this, of course, has nothing to do with nihilism or giving up or passivity, right? Sometimes people think of meditation in that way. Such a shame. It's such a shame. This requires great sense of vitality and that it offers this sense of inner aliveness. Well, let, let, let's talk just briefly about that issue of whether uh, the, the, the practice leads to nihilism or or passivity or anything because there's a uh there's a really nice passage from a uh a Zen Buddhist I don't know how to pronounce this exactly D O G E N Dogen maybe yeah. but maybe not but anyway it, it it's I guess maybe where the title of your book comes from it, it says uh magnanimous heart is like a mountain stable and impartial exemplifying the ocean it is tolerant and views everything from the broadest perspective Having a magnanimous heart means being without prejudice and refusing to take sides. Now, this refusing to take sides thing, it makes some people worry. Like, like, no, I'm a Democrat and, and, and I, I, and, and so on. In other words, like life and life involves making moral judgments, being on one side and, and so on. So, of course, what that means is that we are inclining towards the wholesome. And we are withdrawing our investment in the unwholesome. And this is very clear. You know, we're really sunk if we don't do that. So we're inclining, you know, we're drawn towards, we're attracted to, we're cultivating the wholesome. And we are also at the same time, as I said, letting go of the unwholesome, of greed, of hatred, of delusion, which pretty much sums up the ills of the heart and why this world is in the shape that it's in. But we're not attached to it. That's what not taking sides means. We don't end up, I'm a good person. I mean, look at the ills in this world through people saying, I'm a good person, right? I'm a good person, right? That's what not taking sides means. It does not mean that we don't stand up for um, for what's right. It doesn't mean that we don't do our best to alleviate the immensity of suffering in ourselves and all around us. I mean, actually, practice offers us this kind of energy and creativity to be able to make a difference in this world. You know, instead of just being idealistic about it or Mm -hmm. judgmental about how others are not, to take responsibility oneself for alleviating suffering. it's It's a kind of a compassionate intervention. Yes, 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 and it's it's not causing more trouble either. Right, which does often result from taking sides. Yes, in a conventional way of saying what it means to take sides. Right. In a Dharma way, not taking sides. Or did we get mixed up there? Or did I get mixed up? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, um, you, you, in other words, you don't mean not making a judgment about which part of some conflict... Right. You know, needs, needs the intervention maybe or, 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 um, but you know, there is in Buddhism, uh, you know, a real emphasis on, on what is called like skillful action. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, which, you know, and skillful intervention calls for a certain amount of, of, of objectivity. Yes. And, and, you know, psychology has been telling us more and more in recent decades about these cognitive biases, these kinds of egocentric cognitive biases that foster kind of tribalistic behavior and you see it in our politics and, and so on. Yeah. Is it, is it your view that, you know, before cognitive biases were cool, so to speak, before they were so talked about, yeah. that meditation was, uh, you know, without naming them, a, a good way to kind of erode them? Absolutely, yes. Definitely, because we're looking at everything when we meditate. I mean, if you just, if you're just honed into, I want to be calm, um, that's going to be good. And it's going to be good probably for people around you, for you to be calmer. But it's, it's just such a, it's, it's such, so little of the path. Because really what we're trying to see is our conditioning. We're trying to see our habits. We're trying to see our biases, right? And one, and the idea is that if we can see clearly, then they can begin to dissolve into, um, you know, into the, into really the light of wisdom and compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to say that. Mm-hmm. And I must say, you know, I, I had mentioned earlier that sometimes when I'm sitting, like a good idea pops up. What I mean by good idea is that um, it's not like <laughs> a revenge fantasy, for example. It's just, it's just not. And, and you know, you, you ha- I have these kinds of impulses. In other words, I'm mad at somebody. It's like, what do they deserve? It, it, it tends just not to be that kind of thought. And, it, and it's actually often a thought involving, you know, a kind of collaboration with someone or or. Some kind of, you know, it's just, it's a qualitatively different kind of idea that springs up when you, when you reach that point of calm. Exactly. And that's insightful. You know, that's like, how, how can I not separate from this person? Like this other person is the enemy and I, you know, have to defend myself and I have to protect myself and I have to annihilate them because they are the enemy. How can, how can it be joined together? And you're doing that within yourself. And then no matter how the other person responds, maybe they, they do and maybe they don't, but something within you is unified. And then you're different when you see that other person. Yeah. 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 Now, so, so we've talked about a marriage ending. Do you want to talk a little about dealing with the with the death of a loved one as you as you had to do? Yeah, um, it was you know it was a time where so much was going on that um, that it was really hard to discern what the grief where the grief was going in terms of whether it was about my father, whether it was about the marriage, whether it was about other things that were going on at that time. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, um, it was a really beautiful death. I can, I can, I can say that. In the sense of? We put on, um, opera as dying and, um, I was able to whisper into his ear. Uh, he was a swimmer and he taught swimming. And so I was able to whisper, go, you know, go head for the open sea. Oh. You're back. Um, if you meet, um, any, any, um, sharks or whales on the way, just, you know, just kind of hit them on the head and, and keep going. Just, hmm. just going head for the open sea. Yeah. That's, that's uh, nice. There are advantages to knowing when, you know, when, when death is happening. I mean, my, my, my father, we, we were gathered around, uh, his bed. Yes. 
Yeah. yeah, I remember you saying, talking about swimming at a meditation retreat. You know, at retreats, if people don't know, uh, the yogis are more or less, uh, are, are silent with the very rare exceptions I already noted. But you do hear some guidance from the teachers. And in the evening, there's a, dar- a so-called Dharma talk. And I remember you talking about swimming. And I think, did you, you, you've done, you do swimming or did swimming or, or was it, was it just your father? <laughs> it's everybody in my family. Yeah, that's what I thought. You were saying you were a swimmer. No, no, no. Everyone in my family other than me. Other than you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I had to learn how to swim because, you know, that was what was going on. But, but, but no, I wouldn't say. I was you abandoned the family tradition. Exactly. But I want to say something about the book because something that has um, gotten back to me in terms of those who have read the book is people are giving this book to um, family and friends who have had a recent loss mm. of a loved one whether because of heartbreak or death or um, or divorce or geography or whatever it might be. And it's really, um, it's really wonderful to me and, and um, heartening that it's, it's people are telling me that it's helping because in the midst of loss, everything is so raw, you know, I mean, you need to be, you need to be supported in exactly the right way. Because it's so incredibly tender and raw. So, you know, I don't know for everybody, but I am getting this, this very positive feedback about it hitting the spot and being of help. And I'm mm-hmm. really happy about that because I didn't expect it. Yeah. I thought this was a book that might be more that, that you really needed to have some meditative experience. You mm-hmm. know, I did write it basically as a love letter for my older, oldest of students. And I thought those are the ones that are really going to, you know, hmm. this book. But people are giving it to people, friends and family who don't know anything about meditation. And, and it's been helping. So I'm really, I, it's a surprise. And I'm, I'm really, really happy about that. That's great. Well, loss, I mean, as you note in the book, there are a lot of kinds of loss. It's yeah. a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a recurring problem. We, we barely scratch the surface of the kinds of loss, I guess. Well, right. Yes. And, and there's profound loss. I mean, in the book, I talk about heartache is so common, right? Um, death of a parent is so common. Um, people experience horrific loss in this life. So I'm really saying that, that, um, loss is dukkha. Dukkha is loss. And, and how can it be seen, um, and experienced? Mm-hmm in a way that alleviates the heaviness, alleviates the accumulation that can happen through, throughout a life. Mm-hmm. Loss after loss after loss. You know, where does joy come in? Where does um, does a depth of wisdom and understanding um, mm-hmm. that many people have, regardless of meditation, because of having moved through experiences of loss with um you know, whatever, whatever means they had at their disposal. And I think we should emphasize something that's probably already clear to people, but we're not talking about a buffering from the feeling. I mean, you, you want to, you want to feel the feelings that are naturally associated with the loss of a loved one. I mean, it would be a dishonor to them not to. And, um, and, and, and there's a, there, there's a sense in which through meditation, you you are more in touch with them and more in a in a I don't know maybe appreciative of them is too much but I mean you know you sometimes you you are appreciative of them is the right way to put it sometimes you know moments of grace of appreciation that it it really means that you deeply loved yeah 
feelings that you're feeling. It means something. It's our humanity. It's not, I mean, this is so important in practice is not to get esoteric and not to get out there and, and to remember that yes, inner freedom is possible. And we have to remember our humanity. Yeah. We have to relate to one another with, with a depth of, um, of affection and the understanding of how terrible life can be at times. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's crucial. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to say about the book? I definitely want you to hold it up to the camera. I'll I'll show you my little book. Show both of the books. First, there's that, the magnanimous heart, the one we're talking about. And I'll show you the cover, which I really love. Um, I mean, point out on the cover that I asked for, by the way, my publisher is Wisdom Publications. Right, which does a lot of Buddhist stuff, uh, a huge range, including, um, you know, actual scripture and, and you know. They are wonderful. They're, yeah. And um, it's so wonderful to have, to be able to say wisdom, you know, asked me to do this or wisdom asked me to do this. <laughs> anyway, um, they asked me what I wanted for the cover. And I said that I'd love like something like clouds and sky. So they came up with this beautiful clouds and sky. And then also that little bird there, the mm-hmm. lucky bird on a wire. <laughs> I, love, I love that little bird. Everybody asks me what kind of a bird it is. And nobody's, nobody really seems to know yet. I'm not a bird or something. Including you, you don't know. I have no idea. No one, and no one has, has told me the, the, told me it yet. We'll, we'll get to the bottom of this. <laughs> now, now what about your, your little picture book? Okay. Which, which I didn't know about before. Yeah. Well, it's only available at um, at IMS and at CIMC at this point. Okay. At some point, I have a teacher page at IMS, so I think there'll be another place that'll be available too. There's probably a way to get it on Amazon, isn't there? I haven't done anything about that, so there's a place where it says it's available, but it really isn't. I see. But anyway, I just want to share it because um, it's a picture book, which means that. I drew the pictures in it. Um, this is, can you see it? When driving, just drive. That's how I. Yes. Okay. Those are nice. Have you, have you, have you been a, a, a drawer from uh, an early age? Yeah. Yeah. I have been. And then I have a few, I have a few quotes here, you know, um, the way of the, the way of the stage is to act without competing. So I have a few quotes here too, but basically the book um, has to do with doing everything in your life with awareness. So when sitting, just sit, when walking, just walk, when reading, just read, when talking, just talk, that kind of a thing. Yeah. And then these little, little, um, that's somebody working on a car, which I have never done, but, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so- congratulations on both books. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for writing them. And also, I have to thank you for, uh, you know, your, for being, uh, my teacher on a number of retreats. I mean, the, fir- the first retreat I went on in 2003 was, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say it was enduringly transformational in the sense that I became a, a, a lovely person for the rest of my <laughs> life, but it, but it changed my perspective permanently and, and, uh, made me see the, the value of the, of the practice and, and, and stick with it. Mm-hmm. And I should, I should, uh, thank, I mean, I guess maybe at this point we should say that your, your former husband, uh, what is, is a meditation teacher and yeah. he was the co-teacher of my first retreat. And I should yes. thank him. I remember, um, 
two little anecdotes about that quickly. I had this super dramatic experience on my first retreat. It was like this psychedelic journey inside to my my brain, which isn't the point of mindfulness meditation by any means. That wasn't mindfulness meditation, but it was very meaningful. Right. And two things. I, I afterwards the science was broken. I I I I tracked him down and told him how amazing it was, and he said. Sounds great, but don't get attached to it. <laughs> I thought, well, I guess that wasn't Nirvana then. Um, the, uh, uh, but the other thing he, he, he said was, you know, I was describing this experience where I kind of saw inside my head, uh, it was like I was chastising myself, which I do a lot. Well, I but need- I said, but suddenly it was like one thing chastising the other. So normally I would be both the, the chastiser and the chastised, but this time I was just the chastised mm. and I wasn't the chastiser. And he said something really interesting. He said, well, now you're half right. And what he meant by that was there's no you to be chastised. I mean, ultimately, that's where you would. And if I found liberation in the ultimate sense, I would have maybe a deeper appreciation of that. But I'll keep trying. Yeah, or not, just... Um, or not. Oh, oh, yeah, trying is a mistake, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a delicate, it's a delicate art. So yeah. want to make this the most important thing in your life and at the same time let go of yeah. any personal ambition, right? Yeah. Well, that was important guidance that I think you gave me, um, was to... Quit obsessing over how successful I'm being at paying attention to my breath, uh, quite so much. I was, yeah. I was plenty intent on doing it. I, 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 I could afford to, to gear it down a little. Yeah. It's just, it's just letting go of the extra, you know, like the, like the forward movement and resting back over and over again, resting back in the moment that is instead of it's going to be or it will become. Yeah. Speaking of extra, final thing that your uh, teacher Mahabua said was that um, that liberation was enoughness. Yeah, see, use that. It's the same way of using these terms. You know, like dukkha, he defined as a constant squeeze. Nirvana, he defined, and it's defined in a lot of different ways, but he defined it as enoughness. So this sense of inner um, wholeness or completeness or um, equanimity or peacefulness that you're not the tanha is gone the thirst the, right. hunger, the, the craving the craving wanting things always to be a little different because you actually have enough exactly exactly and that's inner you know because the world continues to do what it does and yet we lose our our struggle we lose our fight. And so we're in the world with a greater degree of engagement, a greater degree of participation, but being able to offer something beautiful instead of um, of just being squished by condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And congratulations again. The book is called The Magnanimous Heart, Compassion and Love, Loss and Grief, Joy and Liberation. Yes. And if you want the little book, you'll have to you'll have to go to either Cambridge <laughs> Insight Meditation right. Center, either one, and or uh, Insight Meditation Society in Barry. Right, exactly. Yes, and and eventually I'll get it going. I just haven't got. And, yeah, and you should check Amazon every year or so to see if Narayan's uh, entrepreneurial instincts have, have finally <laughs> kicked in. 
It's so unlikely, but I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Bob. <laughs>